Before we start the show, I want to tell you about Serve HQ. Every church leader knows that having trained and engaged volunteers is essential to accomplishing your mission. But if you're like most leaders, you know how tricky it is, almost impossible sometimes it feels like to find a time to onboard and equip the new people on your team. But what if there was a resource that could make it easier? I'd love to recommend to you Serve HQ. Serve HQ is simple video training courses that help you equip and develop your volunteers and your leaders. You can create your own training or you can use their video library. You can even automate next steps to onboard new people simply and efficiently. Check it out at servehq.church. The link will be down in the show notes. Servehq.church. You know, you should be a CEO. Like that is actually the world where you would properly (laughs) use your incredible leadership gifts and strategy and passion and all of that. Like you should be a CEO, but maybe you shouldn't be someone who is responsible for shepherding souls, which is a vision of ministry and vocation that is not about growth at all costs, that is impractical, that is inefficient that is interpersonal, that requires you to show up for events in people's lives that are not going to lead to direct growth. So I just wonder if we've kind of confused these two models of leadership and then we end up with a generation of pastors who would be great CEOs, but are not effective pastors and people in their church are suffering as a result. My friends, welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm your host, Joanna LaFleur. This is season nine, episode 13. Today on the podcast, we have Caitlin Beatty, who's a New York-based journalist, and we're talking to her about her research on Christian celebrity. We're talking about personas, platforms, and profits today. So I think you want to lean in if this is something that has irked you or you've kind of wondered about it. Maybe you liked our Preachers and Sneakers episode. Go back and check that out if you haven't already. But thank you so much to our sponsors who are making the season possible. We wouldn't be able to do it without them. We wouldn't be able to do it without you liking, sharing, rating, all that stuff that you're doing to get the podcast out to more people. But Serve HQ is where you can train your ministry volunteers, leaders, and new members online fast and easy. ServeHQ.Church. And Compassion Canada, who is lifting children from poverty and hunger in Jesus' name. And finally, Scripture Untangled. It's a new podcast by the Canadian Bible Society, Untangling Scripture, talking to people about how we wrestle through that. There's going to be a little bit more about those sponsors later, but for now, let me tell you a little bit about Caitlin Beatty. Caitlin is a journalist, editor, and observer of trends in the American church. She's written for the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Washington Post, Religious News Services, Religion and Politics, The Atlantic, and has commented on faith and culture in CNN, ABC, NPR, Associated Press, and CBC here in Canada. She is a podcaster herself, And she also was the print managing editor of Christianity Today. So there's a huge resume there. The point is she's a seasoned journalist asking important questions about Christianity in our culture today. So I hope you enjoy this conversation about Christian celebrity with Caitlin Beatty. Caitlin Beatty, welcome to Word Made Digital. It's really a joy to have you on the podcast. 
Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, I mean, we're here because the topic of your latest book is around celebrity and church. And this is a huge topic I talk about a lot and can't wait to talk with you about because I think it's so significant. But before we go too far, um, maybe as a means of introduction, who who is Caitlin Beatty? Can you tell us a little bit about your context? Well, I am a book author, obviously, a journalist and editor. I am a Midwesterner living in New York City. I am an oldest child and definitely fit the (laughs) stereotypes of all of that. Um, I think at the end of the day, I'm someone who believes that words can change the world and want to steward my words to help other people um, see things differently, understand big cultural trends and dynamics in the church and um, help people glean wisdom about faith and life in the contemporary world. Um, Amazing. Well, you had me at Words Can Change the World because this podcast is called Word Made Digital. And so uh, a lot of people who listen to this podcast might agree with that, like words and communication and sort of the creative use of how we do this, whether that's in live and in person on in print or digital. I mean, all of this stuff matters so much. And I thought that it would be really interesting to start our conversation talking a bit about your career, because even actually as you wrote Mm -hmm. in your, why you wrote the first book you did is because you've had kind of an unusual journey. Um, So let's go backwards a bit. Were you always wanting to be a writer? Um, How did you discover Mm. this about yourself as a younger person? Yeah. I was just thinking this week about the two job shadows that I had as a child. I don't know if you have job shadowing in Canada, but in sixth grade, I job shadowed at the library. Um, And my mom was a librarian. So I'm sure it was, I just want to be like my mom. But then in eighth grade, I ended up job shadowing a journalist who worked for our local newspaper and covered arts and culture coverage. So he even asked me to review a couple new albums and like took me out to lunch. And, and so I, I suppose that there was something in me even then that really enjoyed the idea of writing in a way that, um, I never wanted to be a fiction writer. In fact, people who write novels, I'm like, you're amazing people. I don't know how you come up with these things <laughs> in your head. Um, because to me, the real world or the the nonfiction world is so fa- endlessly fascinating and interesting. And I always wanted to write to try to understand complex things in the modern world. Um, yeah, I mean, I studied communications in college. I remember enjoying writing papers. <laughs> um most papers, I should say, maybe not like chemistry papers, but writing as a way to think well, to learn as I went. And I think that's true for my writing today and has been throughout my career is writing is actually a way for me to process as much as it is to help mm. other people process. Mm. It is the, the way that I think, you know, um, And so, yeah, that's been, that's definitely been a drumbeat throughout my career. I 
worked at Christianity Today magazine for about a decade. And that was obviously more journalistic work, um, freelanced for a few years and then have been in Christian book publishing uh, with Baker Books for the last four years. Well, let's talk about Christianity Today, because I think for people who are writers and and Christian writers, that me, might be one of the like the epochs of like, uh, if I could write for them in the Christian space, that's like, those mm-hmm. are the guys. So how, how did one get there, uh, you know, so early in your career? Um, my understanding is that was really one of your kind of first, and did you, and you worked your way up there into like a, like mm-hmm. a pretty senior role. How, how did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. No, I, I well, I, I was able to start there and get a foot in the door through a mutual friend who passed along my resume. I was Mm -hmm. fresh out of college. I really had no, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew about Christianity today because my parents got the magazine when I was growing up. And I thought, well, I guess if I want to write journalistically and want to write for a Christian publication, this is a good place to start. So yeah, I ended up starting as a copy editor there. And then, yeah, it slowly Worked my way up, um, ended up being the print managing editor for four years. And so it was, it was fun to help curate a conversation for the church. I think magazine publishing, uh, allows you to just the variety of topics you can touch on and the, even the variety of types of writing you can include in one particular issue is really, really fun. And even mm-hmm. though I'm not, in that space anymore. Um, I, I miss the journalistic aspect of that kind of publishing, um, kind of responding to things that people are talking about today. Like how can we bring uh, Christian wisdom to bear on contemporary life and issues in a direct way? Now mm-hmm. I do not miss the 24 hour news cycle. <laughs> I do not miss the incredibly tight publishing schedule that we had to work under. Book publishing is much more forgiving in that regard. But yeah, I I miss um, kind of responding to what are people talking about right now and how can we, how can we um, help our readers think better and more Christianly about what's happening right now? Yeah. Well, of course, I, I, my understanding is, of course, you weren't involved in it, but the Christianity Today thing that I think has introduced that whole world to a new generation is this Mars Hill, Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast that they've done. Mm-hmm. Um, and this like, huge amount of journalistic work that that took. And I'm, I'm not suggesting that you were involved in it, but it's just interesting as a parallel like mm. this previous work that you did and now the writing that you're doing about celebrity and Christian culture, celebrity and evangelism. I mean, this has been sort of, um, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's it's tied through many maybe parts of your career. I'm sure you've seen it from a bunch of different angles. Um, I'm curious, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, I was I was going to say, yes. I mean, Christianity Today was the place where I first started to think deeply about celebrity dynamics in the church precisely because we were receiving tips and allegations about celebrity leaders, household names, and had to figure out how do we cover this responsibly? um, How do we corroborate these tips? And the more stories came to us and the more that we had to report on, the more I thought, is there something in the water here? 
with celebrity culture itself that leads to abuses of power or people acting without accountability. Of course, I, I listened to the rise and fall of Mars Hill, that podcast last summer feverishly as I was writing this book thinking, Oh shoot, I wish my book were out right now. <laughs> Cause it would be such a natural follow-up to, right. to the podcast. But yeah, I think they did, you know, the, the podcast team there did an excellent job. Um, you know, we, we knew like the top line headlines of those stories. They weren't reporting anything new per se. It was the really deep analysis provided so that even if you weren't in, if you weren't, even if you weren't connected to Mars Hill, you still thought, yeah, but I've been in churches like that, or I've been around leaders like that. I've seen these same dynamics play out in other ways. So there's obviously something broadly cultural and systemic at work that we need to address. Right. And, and, um, you know, before we, we go, we're sort of starting to wade into the waters of this conversation <sighs> now. I mean, mm -hmm. and when you're thinking of other people, whether that's like the small time Instagram or, or YouTuber, or it's someone who has a larger platform, what would your insider advice be around what you've learned through your professional work about when is it news? <laughs> and when is it like, I mean, you, you have this sort of gate, this gatekeeping power of like, when is it something we need to be reporting? And when is this mm -hmm. something, um, you know, it's there, but we're not going to maybe make comment on it and elevate the story mm -hmm. or, you know, bring the story to more people. Because I think the criticism, mm -hmm. of course, you, you can appreciate, I'm sure you got this, you, you would get this all the time at a place like Christianity Today or other publications. <laughs> Even if you're just a blogger, people say, why do you got to write about this? Why do you got to say about this? You're making the church look bad. Um, mm -hmm. You know, do we really need to talk about this? Uh, what would you say to mm -hmm. that? <laughs> yes. Well, I would say the, the first part of your question is good because it highlights the fact that not all bad news is in fact news that needs to be covered. I mean, there was, there was for as much mm -hmm. as we did cover and as much as CT does cover today, I know that their staff gets a lot of tips and allegations that they don't follow up on. I think precisely because CT understands itself to be serving a national, international Christian readership. And if, you know, not everything rises to the level of national or international import, it's, you know, it's simply because even in terms of staff time and energy, you just don't even have time to dig into all these allegations. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's a local story and you really hope that somebody locally picks it up. Um so truth, reporting the truth is not gossip. Like saying something negative that is true <laughs> is not gossip. And I tend to think that as long as the news is being reported with responsibility and fairness and the claims that are being made can actually be backed up with on the ground reporting, this kind of news, even though it's hard to hear and receive, is an opportunity for all of us to reflect on how the church could more fully live into the goodness and beauty it's called to in Christ. Um, that these are opportunities for self-reflection, for examination, for repentance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that there can be 
a response to the stories that feel like a pile on effect. And so how we respond to this news, I don't want these stories to become an occasion for people to just slam the church or slam Christians. But the problem there is not the news itself. It's people's response to it. So right. I welcome, I welcome bad news if it helps us reform. Hmm. Hmm. That's interesting. I welcome bad news if it helps us reform, as in if this is, <laughs> if this is something to learn from, to consider and be sober minded about what's wrong. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, before we go, let, I really want to get to the book now, but I'm, I'm curious because <laughs> I see, I see in your, um, you know, in your, uh, you know, you're about me that it says you studied theology at Oxford, which makes me want to know, was it at the school associated with Ravi Zacharias? I, that's a really good question. So it was Wycliffe Hall, which is an evangelical uh, wing of the Oxford school system. And it was through a, a program called SKIO. Now, I think there probably is some, like, I, I wouldn't be surprised if people connected to Wycliffe are also connected to RZIM. I never directly interacted with him or other RZIM um, staff while I was at Wycliffe, but there are some overlapping circles there for sure. Yeah, I guess I, I I don't have the name in front of me, so I don't want to misspeak about what it is. But there is there was um, like a, a school of evangelism at Oxford that was affiliated mm-hmm. with the RZIM uh, ministries. And, and that's why I just asked of curiosity. I mean, I was like, is this what partly led, you know, you lead down this path, you've got this amazing mm. education, this, um, this, you know, historic institution, Oxford behind your name, but then there's this tarnishing for some because it was associated or is associated with this person who is one of these celebrity Christians who had such a public, um, mm-hmm. fairly horrifying story come out about him in, you know, in mm-hmm. the wake of his, his death. Um, so let's go, let's go there. <laughs> I mean, you, you wrote this book, I imagine, because it's not just one story. There's so many stories. I mean, Ravi is, is just one example, but we can all think mm-hmm. of these names. I think you and I seem of, of a similar age and it feels like all of these leaders who we sort of looked up to growing up or admired or learned from, whether that's mm-hmm. in the worship side or the thinking and theological side, the pastoral side. So many of these guys, mainly guys, have had these big rise and big fall moments. Um, but why did you want to write about it? Maybe let's start mm. there. Why did you want to write about mm-hmm. it? Yeah, I think probably like a lot of your listeners, you know, I even though I just gave this philosophical justification for bad news and like genuinely believe that we need to reckon with truth in order to do better. Um, Those headlines were also really hard for me to read, you know, like I had no real personal connection to Ravi Zacharias, but I remember reading his books in college and listening to his debates with various atheists and just thinking, at the time, isn't it, isn't it so amazing to have somebody who can kind of intelligently articulate the faith mm-hmm. um, to a skeptical audience? Like I, and I, of course, I just believe that he was who he presented himself to be. So there's, there's really, um, 
terrible cognitive dissonance in seeing those headlines. And that's all the more true if you are personally connected to that person or you've worked in their church or organization. So I wanted to dig into this topic because I wanted to step back from all the headlines that we've all seen and responded to and go deeper and examine what are underlying core dynamics that lead someone to become a celebrity in their midst. Sometimes or oftentimes, I imagine without intending to, you know, I think a lot of the big names that we're thinking of probably started with really good motives and intentions, you know, and then over time, mm. yeah, people started to treat them like godlike or, you know, would just hang on to their every word or stand when they came into a room and they benefited financially from their you know, speaking and writing. And it just, you know, it can feel really good to be in the spotlight and have people praise you in that way or applaud your words. And so it, it, it's insidious. Like, I don't think it starts out in a lot of cases with people saying, I am going to use my celebrity power to deceive others or abuse others. It starts with good intentions and then something creeps in, you know, and I think right. what, what ultimately creeps in is the experience of power having power over other people and not having the attendant spiritual grounding or wisdom to know how to resist the temptations that come with power. And mm -hmm. these are temptations that anybody with a platform, with a public presence, including myself, uh, these are dynamics we have to be aware of within ourselves and ask people around us to, um, see and speak into if we can't see it for ourselves. You know, it's easy for me to say like, well, I'm not so-and-so. I only have this many followers. So I right. would never be, <laughs> I would never be tempted to, you know, use the spotlight for my own self-glory or gratification. But that's where you've like, your first step is a misstep. <laughs> if you think that you would, you're totally immune to these temptations and dynamics. Mm. I want to take a minute in this conversation with Caitlin because the Bible itself beyond the church can feel, you know, really overwhelming, confusing, and hard to believe. What do we do with the Bible? Well, Scripture Untangled is a new podcast by the Canadian Bible Society, and it's bringing you interviews with culture leaders, leaders in ministry, and Bible thinkers, scholars who help you understand and dive into the Bible so you can do that for yourself. You can listen for free and subscribe to Scripture Untangled wherever you listen to this podcast or wherever you watch this podcast, or you can go to Scripture Untangled .ca for more info. Scriptureuntangled.ca. Yeah, or it's, well, I'm not big enough for this to happen to me. Yeah, I can appreciate that as a warning for everyone who's listening and myself. Um, you talk about it as, you know, this idea of it, celebrity being woven. And this is, this is, I think I'm quoting this, this woven into the fabric of the evangelical movement. Um, is there a history lesson you want to offer us or some, 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 um, mm. maybe if we're using the analogy of woven, what are the threads that we could, could grab onto that you're seeing how it's woven into the fabric? Evangelicals in general, the first thread would be a tendency to orient their ministries around 
charismatic individuals with very powerful speaking skills over and against a kind of staid institutional identity and authority. Um, like the mega church model, even though, of course, it's an mm-hmm. institution, almost all mega churches are oriented around the one charismatic person. Um, so, yeah, evangelicals tend to think of the spiritual life and spiritual growth as an encounter with individuals with very powerful speaking skills. Another thread would be a very pragmatic embrace of mass media and technology. Um, that if we have these tools available to us to reach many more people with the gospel than, mm-hmm. than Jesus could in his lifetime, why wouldn't we use these tools? Um, Billy Graham, who I write about in the book, and I consider kind of the first quintessential evangelical celebrity, you know, very, very powerfully and adeptly used radio, newspapers, television to communicate the gospel to reach millions of people with the gospel. He even bragged that he reached more people than Jesus, which is kind of wow. bold. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> but but a kind of um a very pragmatic embrace of media and technology without thinking about the ways that media and technology shape and change the message that we're offering. Right. Like the Marsha McLuhan, the medium is the message. Is the technology neutral or is it inherently um, built in to do something different to the message? Right. Exactly. Yes. Um, and then the third thread would be, I think, a kind of a bigger is better mentality. Um, you know, I, I reflect on the church growth movement and I grew up attending a mega church hopeful. I don't think we ever got to that status, but we really, really wanted to. Okay. I love that expression. Just as a side note, mega church hopeful. That might be one of the new (laughs) uh, phrases I adopt from you. (laughs) Just trademark it. Be sure to copyright it. Um, (laughs) We all, well, we all know those churches and we all know those leaders as well. The mega church hopefuls. Yeah. Kind of a vision of, what the church exists to do is to grow and whatever works in terms of getting people, getting more people into the church is a tool that we should adopt is a strategy we should adopt. Um, and this is not me of course saying, you know, I, I understand that the desire to reach people with the gospel, that that's a good desire and a good impulse, but, um, not again, not all growth tools, no growth tools are neutral. Like they all kind of carry and import with them um, implications about what we are doing together as the church. And I think in a lot of these, you know, headlined stories, the rationale was, yeah, he's brash or he's not very nice to the staff or there are some character issues we're starting to see. But whenever he preaches, people show up to hear him preach. Like more people are coming because of his speaking skills, because of his leadership vision. We don't, the train is going. We don't want to stop the train. We don't want to slow down the train. We're on the train. Our paychecks are attached to the (laughs) continuation of the train. And then you, you know, and then the train crashes and then you think, 
well, yeah, people, we grew and people came, but then what is their experience of the church now? So just becoming wise about growth strategies and maybe growth isn't the main point. That's a, as I say it, I realize that's kind of a bold, bold statement, but Hmm. growth at all costs is certainly not the point. Hmm. Right. Well, I'm thinking the parallel uh, right now, I'm thinking of a company like Meta, AKA Facebook, who is um, for the first time right now, um, you know, this, this myth of like perpetual growth that like Facebook has only grown until now where now they're seeing some decreases in, you know, quarter after over quarter profits and they're freaking out. You know, everyone's saying it's the downfall of fa- Facebook, Instagram's all going down. It's all about TikTok. I mean, my point being that this myth of like, we will only go up and to, to the right, like mm. it will only ever get better. Um, mm-hmm. which is, which is about capitalism, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which is, and I'm not mm-hmm. an, I'm not a economist, but, um, this idea of constant growth, and like mm-hmm. the casualties, even the casualties of capitalism, I think of like the environment is a casualty of capitalism. We, if we have to keep growing, we're going to just mm-hmm. like take everything out of the earth in order to do so. Um, mm-hmm. I think there is a parallel then. I don't, I don't know if you've done much exploration mm-hmm. of that, but this idea of how evangelicalism and capitalism have in America have become... Uh, well, they went to bed together, you know, they become married in mm-hmm. some way. Um, mm-hmm. Do you want to comment on that? No, I think that's really right and perceptive that, you know, the mega church movement of the 80s and 90s was expressly about borrowing tools from the world of business and marketing <laughs> to figure out how to grow a church. I mean, the architects of the mega church movement explicitly without any apology said, we have a lot to learn from the worlds of business in order to make the church be successful. So the connection isn't even, (laughs) it isn't even indirect. It's like direct and truthfully the ways that a lot of lead pastors in that movement lead and even think about church. I think, you know, you should be a CEO Like that is actually the world where you Mm. would properly (laughs) use your incredible leadership gifts and strategy and passion and all of that. Like you should be a CEO, but maybe you shouldn't be someone who is responsible for shepherding souls, which is a distinctly, which is a vision of ministry and vocation that is not about growth at all costs, that is impractical, that is inefficient, that is interpersonal, that requires you to show up for events in people's lives that are not going to lead to direct growth. So I just wonder if we've kind of confused these two models of leadership. And then we have we end up with a generation of pastors who would be great CEOs, but are not effective pastors and people in their church are suffering as a result. 
Hmm. Well, I'm thinking of this idea I have in my notes here for you, copying and perpetuating this idea of like, like, it's like, I think for a lot of pastors, they're not, I don't mean they're dumb people. Of course they're not, but it's like, they've been taught this is the way to do it. And now they're just copying and perpetuating it, that the discipleship Mm -hmm. they received was this model. And so they're not, I don't mean they're going blindly and they couldn't be thoughtful about what they're doing. I think they are, but like, this is the model that they live in. And so they're trying to do the same. Um, so, right. <laughs> uh, and, and, and with good hearts, you know, where it's, I don't think this is a sinister plan. As you've said, I appreciated mm-hmm. that you said that a lot of people who, who rise up to this level of platform and persona, I don't think this, I mean, if you wanted to do that and go out and start that way, I think most people would probably not start in the church. There would be other ways you could become like the mm-hmm. Tony Robbins or something. If you wanted to be like a guru, <laughs> um, you know, and you'd make more money than in the church. I mean, that arguably you can make a lot of money in the church doing this, but it just feels like there would probably be a better strategic plan. So I agree that mm. it is usually by accident that this happens. Um, and then of course, most people can't handle this kind of, power, Mm -hmm. success, even if it's just 500 people who are admiring them and looking to them. Mm -hmm. Um, So if that's the model, you know, (laughs) what, you know, how do, how do we, how do we do something different? Are, are you Mm. seeing something different? Um, Mm. Is there something else, whether in the world or in scripture or another country? I mean, are you seeing another Mm. way? Because I think it's just sort of this, perpetuating of, well, this is how my mm-hmm. pastor did it and I'm going to do it this way too. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, um, let's all be capitalists. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yes. You're right to note that, you know, if, if you only have one model to work with, how, how would you choose a different model? Like if you've only ever been taught one way of being and doing the church, who's to blame you for doing it that way? I will say just anecdotally and maybe speaking generationally, um, I think a lot of people my age who grew up, if not in a mega church, then again, in mega church hopefuls and grew up in a church environment that was set on growth at all costs, just recognize that that model often is really great at growing and drawing in more people, but doesn't always have the communal structures to Mm -hmm. foster deep spiritual growth and rootedness. And if it means that actually to have that, I think you, you need real embodied relationship. And I tend to think that might be easier in a smaller church environment. And when I say smaller, I don't have a specific number in mind. Maybe it's 200 people, maybe it's 500 people, but opting out of a church experience where, you know, you show up for an hour on Sunday mornings and all of your felt needs are catered to, and you get the inspirational message and then you leave and you don't really talk to anybody. Like maybe what you're trading is, yeah, the sermon is kind of boring. And some of the people I speak to after church are a little bit awkward, but I'd rather have an experience of kind of in-person connection and relationship and a, and a space where we can all go deeper together in scripture, Mm -hmm, in the mm -hmm. Christian tradition, than a space where all of my needs are catered to, but I'm still hungry. I mean, in fact, 
<laughs> we like in in a capitalistic society such as ours, we are very used to being in spaces where our needs are catered to. Wouldn't it be kind of countercultural and even refreshing to be in a space where something is asked of us or something is demanded of us or our attention, our attention spans are having to be stretched <laughs> to really get the full effect. So that's a generational comment. Um, I do wonder how these headlines and kind of the stories of fallen Christian leaders will retool what's being taught like in seminaries or divinity schools or what's happening on a denominational level. I think we, we intuit that there's something about the model that is broken. So I'm kind of curious to see for the generation that is coming up into church leadership, if, if, or how they will choose a different path. In my own theological study, when I was doing seminary, what struck me about the early church as we are reading the history and how the gospel spread in those first few centuries in particular, it was very hard to join the church in those days. There was no welcome team. There was no, I don't know, here's your five-step, you know, uh, you know, membership plan or whatever. It was um, almost like the opposite it's like almost we didn't want you to join. It was like a secret club. You were They were hard to find. The requirements mm. of what you had to do, I don't know. I, I'd have to go refer to it. The different communities said different things, but the things that were expected of your life, the things that were expected of your money, the things that were expected of um, you, your, your physical and disciplines, your sexuality, all these kinds of things mm -hmm. that were so disciplined, it made it almost impossible for people to want to join. It's like the opposite of a marketing strategy. <laughs> it was like that you don't want to join a strategy. And, and, and yet, uh, the church did grow, um, mm -hmm. albeit mm -hmm. slowly. Um, mm -hmm. and so, you know, I, I think there's these good intentions of having the welcome team and all those things I just said, you know, here's how you join the course, the membership, how do we clearly communicate this? There's obviously good intention there, but do you think we're making it like, we're making it too easy. Um, mm. Um, and then when it's too easy, to, it's just as easy to leave as it was to join. Hmm. That's a really good question. I mean, I don't think we should go back to making it so hard so as not to find where people are gathering because <laughs> we are yeah. not living in a time <laughs> where we're facing persecution or the potential for being martyrs in the way that people in the early church were. We have freedom to be a little bit more open and forward about what we're doing. But yeah, I think it's the difference between kind of welcome and discipleship and getting people from one step to the next and the mega church model and kind of a felt needs approach is really good at getting people in the door, but then converting people from attendees to disciples, that's going to be a bigger ask, <laughs> right? That's going to be asking people of, and I'm not, I'm not thinking about money or tithing. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about a time and energy and commitment to community where together we are all learning what it means to follow Jesus in our daily lives and to be conformed to his image. And by the way, that process can be very painful or boring or, you know, not, not meet our immediate felt needs. It's requiring something of us, but I, 
I kind of think my impression is that the things that are most worth doing in the world are the things that require something of us. Like, you know, good things tend to be hard things, but we are transformed in the process. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's getting out of the attendee model to the disciple model that I, and I do think that actually there are big churches that have managed to figure out ways to do that, you know, to draw people into deeper and smaller communities, small groups, discipleship groups. Let's take this a step further. Um, so I think it's possible in a big church. I just think it takes intentionality um, that can be, that is a risk because you think, well, we're probably going to lose some people. This is what we're asking people to do. Right. But maybe right. a smaller church that's deeper is better than a bigger church that's shallower. In this episode, we're talking to Caitlin Beatty about one extreme of Christianity, which is, you know, wealth and prosperity and celebrity. But there's another side. And here's what you need to know. Right now, the world is facing an unprecedented global food crisis. And I don't know if you know the numbers. It's super staggering, actually. 828 million people, nearly 10% of the world's population is affected by hunger this past year. And that's in context, 46 million more people than the year before. So it's getting worse right now, not better. It's really hard sometimes to know what to do about that. We hear this news, it sounds like too big to even comprehend. We, we don't know what it's like to not know where our next meal or how we're going to feed our kids. We, we don't know what that's like, but Compassion's local church partners are on the front lines and they are responding to this huge need and we can partner with them to answer hunger with hope. So this year's Gifts of Compassion gift guide, which is an amazing thing to do at this time of year in the holiday season, and includes gifts specifically targeted at meeting the critical needs brought on by this global food crisis. Give at compassion.ca slash shop. Compassion.ca slash shop is where you can go to the Gifts Compassion gift guide and check out something that you may want to give to someone this year on behalf of children in need around the world in Jesus' name. Yeah, and I appreciate what you're saying. It's not necessarily a large church, therefore by its very you know, all all large churches can't do this, um, uh, but it is harder in a big church. You know, I, I think of this idea, this Apostle Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Um, and in some ways, some people would argue that he was like a mega church leader because he had these churches mm -hmm. in all these localized places and he was writing letters and kind of helping to hold the theology and the teaching for many people across many cities, um, like a multi-site model, uh, it could be argued in some <laughs> ways. And so he's saying, follow me as I follow Christ. Um, you know, and, and I think that's always, it's, it's this beautiful thing to aspire to, but we have to live up then to the thing we want people to follow. <laughs> like, how do we do? And then mm. also, even for Paul, he's saying that it is a distance. It's not that they were you would have these times of close proximity to him, but most of the time he was not with you. Um, mm -hmm. You know, he was in some other place or he's in prison. He couldn't be with you even if he wanted to be, he was in prison. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you wrestle with that? Because I think that is the model of how we disciple is follow me as I follow Christ. Um, but we're all messed up people. <laughs> Big mm -hmm. church, small church, celebrity, persona, you know, unknown. How do, how do we do that? <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is that if you think that you are like Paul, you're probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning, 
Meaning the vast majority of pastors and church leaders are almost certainly called to be more like the unnamed, you know, leaders within specific Mm -hmm. small Christian communities of, I don't know, at the time, maybe it was eight to 10 people gathering in someone's home. And the pastor was not giving a wowing sermon to the people gathered. They were breaking bread together and praying for each other. And so, yes, you do have a model in Paul of someone who is using, I suppose, the technology of his time, a scribe and, you know, kind of hand delivered letters to offer leadership and edification to the early church. Um, you know, would would Paul have like a multi-site pre-recorded sermon to send out to his campuses if he were leading today? Uh-huh. Maybe, but I just keep coming back to the primacy of in-person community and relationship. Mm-hmm. And technology does create a distance between a speaker, a communicator, a leader, and his or her audience that can be dangerous or can, can lead to temptation in the distance and the distance between the spotlight or the stage and the audience can creep in all sorts of temptation. So the, the default posture should be to make in-person relationship and discipleship the primary thing. And to think of the technology as secondary and kind of ancillary to the main thing that's happening. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it is it is a huge challenge because, you know, even now as we speak, we're using technology to connect and having, you know, I think a, a rich conversation. But it's not the same as you and I being in the same mm-hmm. room together and getting to know mm-hmm. each other. And as you say, breaking bread or you know, sushi or whatever it is we happen to be eating. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and so it makes me just, uh, you know, the, the, this idea of, of like the, the opposite of the celebrity, I guess, is then like the monk who goes into the wilderness and says, you know, forget, or maybe the, the Amish, you know, forget technology, <laughs> obscure life, um, but you live in New York city. I live in Toronto, the largest city in Canada, huge city. Um, it's just not our lives. Like, right. and, and how right. could anyone become a Christian if we all escape to the will? I mean, I guess the, they could come out and find, like they did with John the Baptist, they could go find people in the wilderness, I suppose. But, <laughs> but there's also, you know, the invitation to live, live as a Christian in the place we are, which includes all this technology, which includes social media, you know, which includes Mm -hmm. you wrote a book so that I could read it and get to know you Mm -hmm. through mediated through that technology. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I, I I mean, there's a question in here somewhere for you, but I'm acknowledging it. There is, it's not all one or the other. Um, How do we do this? Yes. What I hear you saying is we live in a technologically savvy world. Many of us use technology to connect with each other. Many of us are dependent on technology to live out our vocations or what we feel called to, myself included. So the answer is not throw away all your phones and disconnect your Wi-Fi and go live in the woods, which you're also going to find technology there today. 
it's how do we, how do we put technology in its proper place? Um, and I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm wrestling with this as we go because it would be weird and hypocritical for me to suggest that all mediated forms of communication should be thrown out when you and I are literally speaking to one another on a podcast. Um, for me personally, one thing that I've thought through or tried to think through is maybe just taking a, taking an inventory of my attention and my affections and how they are oriented in my lived daily life. Am I actually living in such a way that communicates that in-person relationship and in-person ways of knowing and being known are the primary thing and that, you know, screens can come and go, but they're Mm -hmm. not the primary thing. Am I living in that way? And that's hard because in my day-to-day work, I am required to be on a screen. You know, I work remotely. My colleagues are in Michigan. Um, I use email (laughs) throughout the day to communicate with authors and agents. But I also, you know, I know that the weeks where I've spent all or most of my time in front of a screen, I feel depleted as a human. I think this is not what we are intended for. You know, I think all of us felt that to some extent in the middle Mm -hmm. of the pandemic where we could not be Mm -hmm. together. Um, So it's really not about, I think some of this and placing technology in its proper place and placing deliberate limits on our use of it it can sound legalistic, but it's actually for our own freedom. Like it's actually for, it's actually freeing us up to live as embodied people in the way that we are meant to live and meant to flourish as God made us, you know, God made us embodied beings. We're not brains on a stick. You know, we're not talking heads. We are, enfleshed and that's how we are meant right. to know and connect with each other and also how we are meant and know how we are meant to know and connect with the body of Christ. And so maybe as a practical question, one of my last questions for you here, um, I'm curious about how this plays out for you in a very practical way on social media, because by nature, I mean, even before we hit record, I said, oh, we follow some of the same people or we have mm-hmm. some mutual ministry leadership connections. And some of them mm-hmm. are bigger names in terms of they have more, literally more followers on Instagram <laughs> than others. Um, mm-hmm. So how do you make decisions about who to follow um, mm. on something like social media and who to because then now you're participating and elevating their platform <laughs> and mm. and how to say, you know what, this is not helpful. I'm going to unfollow, not because I'm a hater or something, but um, <laughs> have you, have, have you navigated that? Because I think we all feel like, you know, there's a lot of noise, but there's mm-hmm. also some people who, who we do want to follow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, this is a very good question. I, I try, I do try to follow so Twitter and Instagram are my primary social media playgrounds. And I try to follow people on Twitter who are going to offer a perspective that is new to me that I'm, I'm like learning from them. You know, I, of course I follow 
a lot of journalists, you know, Twitter for me too is um, about finding things funny. And so sometimes it's a follow because like, I know we grew up in the same church environment. I know you'll like, we vibe on a comedic level. And so when I follow you, like I have some levity in my life. Instagram for me is actually, it's a trickier platform. I think it's more subtle. I think it is more aspirational. Most of the people I follow on Instagram are either people I know in real life, people I know, (laughs) people with whom I have a previous relationship and I want to keep tabs on their life. Like I want to know, where are you traveling this weekend? What is your family up to? Like, if you're a writer, like, what are you working on these days? Um, Or I follow people with thinking about book publishing in mind, like, oh, they're, they're, they're gifted communicators. I want to hear from them. And I'm thinking about, could they be an author that we work with? I have unfollowed people who stir up in me envy slash judgment. And I put Mm -hmm. that on myself. You know, I put, I, I ultimately think of that as this is some insecurity in me that I don't know how to navigate, but for the time being, it's probably better not to come across that content that's going to stir up unhealthy emotions or thoughts in me. So I don't, I don't follow I don't follow people who stir up that kind of insecurity or envy or who I feel like are trying to lead from an aspirational place. Like I have an amazing life and you should want my life too. Right. Right. Wisdom versus, you know, offering wisdom and insight versus, or, or even comedy (laughs) versus like, um, look at me. Don't you love my life? Kind of. Yeah. And I, you know, I think connected to that, um, on Instagram, when I perceive that someone is trying to teach and draw attention to something outside of themselves versus someone who's trying to project a curated image of themselves right. that is supposed to inspire like attachment or adoration, I'd rather focus on their work than on their persona. No, I actually like that. That's a really helpful, uh, filter. Um, Caitlin, if people want to find you and they want to follow you and the irony of this whole thing, but they want to find your book, they, they feel challenged by what you're saying and they want to mm-hmm. dive deeper because you've done much more work on this in your, in your writing. Where do you want to send people on the internet today? Yes. Well, they can start at caitlinbeatty.com. There is information there about my two books, including Celebrities for Jesus and links to various places where you can purchase the book. I have essays on my website as well um, related to this issue, but other issues on faith and culture. And then I am on Twitter at Caitlin Beatty and I'm on Instagram at Caitlin underscore Beatty. Uh, Caitlin, thanks so much for joining. Important conversation, uh, challenging conversation for all of us as we navigate the churches we lead the churches we're part of, the churches we help build um, by our, you know, our presence and contribution Um, and a sobering conversation too, uh, in light of a lot of 
celebrity drama and some grief that we've all felt in the last mm-hmm. few years from it. So thank you mm-hmm. so much for, for doing this work and uh, challenging us today. Yeah. Thank you for having the challenging conversation and for really good and thoughtful questions. Thanks so much. Enjoy the conversation with Caitlin. Uh, It was really interesting to get in her brain a little bit about that. Next week, we are wrapping the season. It's going to be the last one of the year, the last one before Christmas. Brian Barcelona will be our guest, and he leads a massive campus movement across the U.S. based on digitally reaching college and high school students. We're talking about digital evangelism with Brian Barcelona next week. Thanks so much to our sponsors and our partners for making this whole thing possible. Word Made Digital is brought to you today by Compassion Canada, who is lifting children from poverty in Jesus' name. And then, of course, we also have Scripture Untangled, which is a new podcast by the Canadian Bible Society and Serve HQ, where you can train your ministry volunteers, leaders, and new members online fast and easy. ServeHQ.church. All right, we'll see you on the YouTube channel. We've got a whole back catalog of these podcasts. We've got tutorials for you. You want to learn how you should think about your homepage on your website or what do you do with TikTok or um, how do you help your staff communicate in a crisis? We've got all kinds of tutorials that are free. We just want to resource you with the best content so you can communicate the best news in the world better than ever before. Check it out and we'll see you next week for the last episode of the season.